May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is a story of a single mother who had two of the orneriest little boys in the entire county. No, their last name wasn't Boisel. But anyway, um, she did the best that she could, um, but they were wild to the core, constantly in trouble. One day she was so fed up, she had all she could take, she had taken all she could take, and so she grabbed the two little boys and she marched them down to St. Mary's Church and she asked Father Flannery if he would have a word with them. Father Flannery was only too happy to have a word with the boys because they were a total nuisance to him as well. And so he was um, anxious to have a, a go at this. He took the youngest son and he set him in the reception area and then led the elder boy into his office, sat him in the, desk, in the guest chair, Father Flannery walks around the big oak desk and sits down in his chair and for a long moment just holds utter silence. And then he opens his mouth and he says to the boy, Where is God? The boy was dumbfounded. He like, this is the strangest question he ever heard in his life. He didn't know what to say. And so he said nothing. He just sat there utterly silent. The priest repeated the question. Son. Where is God? Again, the boy was just completely dumbfounded. He had nothing he could say. He, he didn't know what the question even meant. And so he just, he just sat there quiet, saying nothing. The priest inwardly thought to himself, I've got him. I've got the boy intellectually cornered. I'm going in for the kill. And so a thrice-repeated question he asked the boy, Son, where is God? And this time for emphasis, God. The boy's eyes got really big. He jumped from his seat, ran through the door, grabbed his little brother by the arm and said, Come on, God is missing and they think we had something to do with it. (laughs) Jesus knew something about false allegations. People would constantly harass him. There were these these fellows who, who went everywhere that he went. Everything he did, they observed, and they constantly were questioning and were adversarial. They were detractors who were, who, were, who were spying him out to see what he would do that was wrong. And today, if you, read, if you looked at the lesson carefully, there are certain men who have come down from Jerusalem. They've called in the heavy hitters, the reinforcements. The FBI, they're here to investigate, to see what's going on. And if you've ever read the gospel, you've seen the names of these people before. They're called Pharisees and scribes. It's not hard to imagine them in their, um, you know, their sort of uh, Charlton Heston style movie attire, you know, with the big robes and the, the, the stripes on them, the long, uh, the long headdress, you know, with, with the tassels. Undoubtedly huge beards. I mean, they had to have these massive beards, right? And, and so here they are, you know, kind of hanging around. And it's, it, it would be easy, I think, for us to imagine them as, um, as somehow, you know, anti-religious or ungodly. You know, they're, they're after all, adversarial to Jesus. They must be, they must be adversarial to, to true religion. And so we're, we see them in that way. But that's not the way we should see them. The word Pharisee, there's some dispute about the word's origin, but most likely it comes from a word that means pious ones, holy men. Pharisees were were men who took religion very seriously. 
They were devout men. The word actually means something like that, devout men. Everything about them screamed religion. The way they dressed, the way they carried themselves in public, everything. And the scribes were a, mostly a part of the Pharisaical sect. They were sort of like the way a detective is part of the police force. You know, you, you call them detectives, they're still, they're still police officers. The scribes were a specialized group. The word for scribe is the same root word as from what we get the word scriptures. These people were experts in the Bible. They were biblical scholars, Ph.D. level biblical material. They understood the scriptures as well as they were, they were experts in the Torah. And every time Jesus seems to get into a confrontation, it's just the same group of guys. you got these, these zealots and their professorial you know, uh, underlings that are hanging around. You, you're always coming up against these same people. And in today's lesson, Jesus has been on this, this big healing uh, mission. And there are people coming from everywhere. Physicians in the ancient world were really rare. And they rarely had anything to offer. A little bit, but not much. As somebody who was a healer. Boy, they were, they were sought out. You'd, you'd come and find them, and, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's out healing. And, and so the scribes and the Pharisees are watching. They want to see what's amiss in his, either in his teaching or in his practice of healing. He goes on through the morning. Apparently nothing has gone too terribly wrong. And they get all the way to lunchtime. Somebody rings his lunch bell or, you know, someone shows up with a basket and says, I brought you lunch. And, um, and the disciples are like my brothers, you know, they pushed him out of the way and they get first, you know, they're running right after the food. And, and the way they eat draws the attention of the Pharisees. The disciples of Jesus are supposed to be, you know, men who live like Jesus, who, whose, whose lives and um, ethic kind of reflect Jesus's in the world. And, and here they are grabbing up the food and they're eating it straight away without doing something that all the, the religious Jews, and, and in fact Mark says all the Jews did in the first century, that is they did not, and here's the word Mark uses, they did not baptize their hands. It's not a hygienic wash. It wasn't like they had to wash the dirt off from you know earlier in the day. This was a baptizing of the hands, that they would ritually wash their hands as a way of, uh, of saying, you know, I need to be cleansed before I eat. It's the way that a lot of us pray before we eat. This was a, an important act of, uh, of devotion that, that people would do before they would eat any, any meal. In fact, here's what the, what the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat, listen to this, with defiled hands? Now the word defiled, doesn't. I mean it sounds kind of pejorative, doesn't it? But it simply means common. They're not ritually pure. Why are they eating with common hands instead of being pure hands? Um, you could imagine uh, that um, every Sunday when we receive Holy Communion, it's, it's always from this, this beautiful chalice. I mean, what would you think if, if when we pulled the veil back this morning, if there was a coffee cup, you know, um, world's greatest dad, you know, on the front of it, you know, and, and that would be our, you you would, no, that is a, that's a common cup. I mean, I think the irony is pretty funny. That, that was a common cup, you know, that's, that's not, that's, a, it's, it's not, it's not consecrated. It's defiled. That's not the sort of cup we take Holy Communion from. 
the disciples of Jesus are clearly flaunting tradition. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees are upset about it. They want to know what's going on. Why are they acting in such an unholy, such a profane way? Why are they behaving that way? Jesus' answer and the, and the, the entire discourse of what he has to say to them attacks a basic supposition. And that is this. That outward demonstrations of piety offer any sort of of ontological benefit. Isn't that a lovely way of saying something? It's the outward acts of piety do anything to change the sort of person that you are. Jesus is undercutting that very notion that outward acts of piety, outward acts of devotion do anything to transform the inward type of human being that one is. What could make someone holy? Well, before I get there, look what Jesus says to the, to the uh, scribes and Pharisees. Isaiah prophesied rightly about you. Hypocrites! Now, I don't know a lot about stuff, but here's what I do know. When you call somebody a hypocrite, they don't like that. You know, they're, they're not very fond of people. Nobody wants to have that said. Jesus calls them hypocrites. This people, you, honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching human precepts as doctrines. Hypocrites. When we hear that word, we think about um, we think about someone who says one thing and does another. You know, like your friend who smokes cigarettes and says that somebody else shouldn't smoke cigarettes, and you're like, "But wait a minute, you smoke cigarettes." You know, stop being a hypocrite. You can't say that about somebody else. That's not really what it meant for Jesus, and in the first century, it really meant someone who's an actor on stage. Someone who plays a part in a play. Jesus is saying, you are pretending to be devout, but you are not really devout at all. You only look like you are devout. You honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. And I can almost hear the pushback, can't you? Can you hear the Pharisaical pushback? Hey, whoa, 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 look at us. Robes, you see these robes? You know? Prayer shawls, you see this? Long tassels? Check our schedules out. We pray all the time. Beard? Long beard? You know, we're serious about this stuff. I don't know what it is about the beards. They always make me look. Yeah. Hey, look at us. We, don't we look holy? Don't we look like people who are devout? The real problem, though, is does any of this outward devotion make it an inward change? In fact, what does real devotion look like? The words of Jesus. He called them the crowd and said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that going in can defile. But the things that come out, that is what defiles. The things that come out of a person, that's what defiles them. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. All this stuff on the outside is not changing what's on the inside. And if it doesn't do that, it's worthless. It's not your hands that need to be cleansed. It's your heart. That's the message of Jesus. And guess what? 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. We can so easily put the cart before the horse, can't we? We can substitute outward acts of piety for inward moral transformation. 
Outward acts of religion for inward moral purity. I thought about this. I can give you at least four, maybe five different ways of making the sign of the cross. You know the sign of the cross? It's lovely. I practice it every day. You can do it with an open hand. One, two, three, four. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can do it by holding your your index finger, your middle finger, and your thumb together to remind you of the Holy Trinity. And you take the other two hands and you place them across your palm and it reminds you of the twofold nature of Christ. And now you do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've got all kinds of stuff going on there, right? You can, you can make the sign of the cross and afterward lay your thumb across your index finger in the shape of a cross and kiss it and remind yourself of the cross of Christ. You could do it in the Eastern Orthodox way, which is to touch your forehead. You could touch your heart, your right shoulder first, and then your left. Woohoo! Get a little crazy there, aren't we? You could do it in the way we do it the gospel. Three little crosses on your forehead that the gospel might remain in our minds and upon our lips and in our hearts. Lots of outward things. But you know what? And and I'm all for it. Don't misunderstand me. Do not get this wrong. There's nothing wrong with the outward sign if it simply serves to remind us that we need inward transformation. The contrast between being experts in outward observance at the expense of inward transformation is the error that the Pharisees and the scribes make. They were all concerned about the outward and not concerned about the inward. We all, every single one of us, every single one of us comes into this world the same way. Each of us has the divine image stamped upon us. There is that image of God deep in our hearts. But we also have another reality, and that is the corruption of sin. Every single human being comes into this world with this this divided heart. This corruption towards evil. It is, we are not tabula rasa, we are not blank slates, we are... We are fallen beings. I've said this before and before, and anybody who's ever had a child knows this is true. Didn't even have to have one. Just be around one. One of the first words they learn, of course, is dad and mom, if they're smart in that order. And, and then they learn other words, right? But almost the very third word they learn after mom and dad, mine. Yes? You know these little children, mine. Mine, they clutch it and pull it close. Where does that come from? It comes from an inward nature that is selfish. We want what we want. The real problem that we have is how do we change the inside? How do we make impure thoughts pure thoughts? How do we stop being greedy for stuff? How do we stop, you know, deprecating the things that we've been blessed with and only wanting more of the things that we don't have? How do we get to the point where we stop living with this pride and arrogance and a desire to control other people? Oh, if it was, I mean, if it was a pill, if I said to you, I have this pill, every one of you, you came to church this morning, every one of you would say, oh, give me that pill. If you could cure that problem right now, I'd take it. Give me a ritual I can do and I'll do it. Let me, whatever it takes, I will. But you know, and I know, that's not the way we're transformed on the inside. Moral transformation, moral 
holiness, inward holiness, comes only one way, and that is by the sheer grace of God. The only way we ever go from being persons who are, who are violently corrupted to persons who, who want and live for God's righteousness is by an act of God's grace. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what grace is. God's power to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And, and so the real question, I guess, is well, how do we get that grace? I mean, how, how do I tap into that? Ask for it. <laughs> That's a good way, isn't it? We can ask for it in prayer. We can, we can so study the scriptures. We could read the words of Jesus and meditate on them over and over again until it becomes part of our nature, part of our being. The Word of God dwells in us deeply and richly. We can come to the table. Not only receive forgiveness for sins done, but actually receive God's very life into our being so that it transforms us and makes us into qualitatively different kinds of people. Now, if, you, if, if doing certain religious acts helps you to, to find the, 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 the wherewithal to say, Lord, I need that, then they're good. But we can never substitute outward acts of piety for inward transformation. We need inward transformation. Don't ever confuse the end with the means. We want to be transformed. Tradition is a means to an end. Not the end itself. There are in Rome um, some steps, not the Spanish steps, another set of steps um, that are called uh, the uh, Scala Santa, the Holy Steps. And uh, they are said to have been brought to Rome in the fourth century by St. Helena, the mother of Constantine. And um, when they were there, that the, these steps actually came from Pontius Pilate's court in Israel. She had them take dis, dis, disassembled in in, uh, in Israel and brought to Rome to be a, a, a relic, a, a site, because these were the very steps. It is said that Jesus Himself ascended at His trial and descended to go to the cross. And so these steps are still in Rome to this very day. And there was, after they came, a, 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 a tradition of pilgrimage. The people would come to see these steps to Rome. And then they began, as, a, as, a, as an act of devotion, to, to get on their knees and to climb these steps. And they would kiss each step as they went along the way. An act of devotion to, to, to draw close to Christ. During the medieval period, the, the climbing of these steps became... Um, became an act of penitence. And people would, would climb these steps and, and kiss each one and, and say their prayers as they did, and it was believed that they would, would feel the relief of thousands of years from purgatory every time that they would climb a step, another thousand years or something like that. And so it became quite a, um, a, a pilgrimage of people in the medieval period. In, in the 16th century, there was a young German monk whose name was Martin, and, um, and he, he really struggled in, in Germany. He struggled about inward purity issues. He could never sense relief from God that he had prayed enough or that he had, he had confessed enough. And so he'd go see his confessor all the time about everything to the point of exhausting his confessor. He didn't want to hear him anymore. No more. You can tell me no more sins, Martin. I want to hear no more of your stuff. And eventually the, the abbot of, of the monastery says, you know, Martin, here's what you need to do. I, I want you to go to Rome, I, and I want you to, 
ascend the, you know, the, um, the Scala Sancta, I want, you to, I want you to pray as you're going up and kiss these steps along the way. And maybe you'll have a sense of relief. And so Martin goes to Rome, makes the pilgrimage, walks from Germany to Rome. And as he arrives in the city, he does exactly as he's told. He's, he's an obedient monk. He goes to the steps. He gets on his knees. He begins saying his prayers, climbing and kissing each step. And as he's climbing the steps, inwardly he hears the voice of Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit brings to his mind a passage he had been studying over and over, St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And here's what he heard. The righteous person will live by faith. And he has a realization that the outward act of devotion, kissing the steps, is not nearly as important as, as, as believing that God would do in him what God promised to do. I suppose he finished his little climb and got to the top of it, and maybe it had some effect in that way. But here's the fact that Luther discovered. If anyone will truly be devout, if anyone will truly and be transformed by God, it will happen one way, by grace, through faith. That's the only way, not by our outward actions, not by the things that we say or do, 